0: Hello and welcome to Shakespeare's Pod, Silicon Valley Shakespeare's podcast. I'm Angie Higgins, Silicon Valley Shakespeare's artistic director. In the spirit of Silicon Valley Shakespeare's motto to innovate, illuminate and inspire, our podcast will be bringing you a mix of exclusive performances, behind the scenes interviews and exploration into the weird and wonderful world of Shakespeare. Halloween is just around the corner, so of course we have magic and mischief on our minds here at SVS. I'd like to present our very own resident dramaturg, Dahl Picado, presenting her Bard Talk on Macbeth. But first, to get us in the mood for our spirits, here are our witches from our 2019 production of Macbeth, directed by Melinda Marks. We present to you Act 1, Scene 1, and Act 1, Scene 3. Featuring Sarah Thurmond, Sarah Renee Morris, and Drew Benjamin-Jones. Or, as we like to call them, Sarah, Sarah, and Not Sarah. Take it away, guys.
1: When shall we three meet again? In thunder, lightning,
2: or in rain? When the hurly-burly's done. When the battle's lost and won.
3: That will be ere the set of sun.
2: Where the place? Upon the heath.
3: There to meet with Macbeth.
2: I come, Gray Malkin. Paddock calls.
3: Anon.
1: Fair is foul, and foul is fair. Fair Hover through the fog and filthy
2: air.
3: Fair is foul, and and foul is fair. Hover through the fog and filthy air.
2: Hast thou been, sister? Killing swine.
3: Sister, where thou?
2: A sailor's wife
1: had chestnuts in her lap, And munched and munched and munched. Give me, quoth I. Aroint thee, witch, the rump-fed Runyon cries. Her husband's to Aleppo gone, master of the tiger. But in a sieve I'll thither sail, And, like a rat without a tail, I'll do, I'll do, and I'll do. I'll give thee a wind. That kind.
3: And I another.
1: I myself have all the other, And the very ports they blow, All the quarters that they know in the shipman's card i will drain him dry as hay sleep shall neither night nor day hang upon his penthouse lid he shall live a man forbid weary sudden nights nine times nine shall he dwindle peak and pine though his bark cannot be lost yet it shall be
2: tempest tossed look what i have show me show me
1: Here I have a pilot's thumb, Wrecked as homeward he did come.
3: A drum, a drum, Macbeth doth come.
1: The weird sisters, hand in hand, Posters of the sea and land. Thus do you go about,
3: about. Thrice to thine, and thrice to mine, And thrice again to make up nine.
1: Peace, the charms wound up.
4: This is Dolph Picado, and welcome to Bard Talk. For my Bard Talk today, I'd like to delve a little bit into the history surrounding Macbeth, as it's extremely relevant to the play as a whole. I'll also dip into a bit why the play tends to lose audiences, how some of it just isn't funny or it doesn't seem relevant, at least to us as modern audiences. Now, one of the first things generally addressed when you're starting a new production of Macbeth is the curse. You'll notice a lot of actors calling the play MacBee or Mackers, or the Scottish play. Now, according to folklore, Macbeth was cursed from the very beginning. A coven of witches objected to Shakespeare using real incantations, so they put a curse on the play. Legend has it that the play's first performance around 1606 was riddled with disaster. The actor playing Lady Macbeth died suddenly, so Shakespeare himself had to take on the part. Other rumored mishaps include real daggers being used in place of stage props for the murder of King Duncan, resulting in the actor's death. Um, Other productions have been plagued with accidents, including actors falling off the stage, witches fainting into cauldrons, mysterious deaths, and even narrow misses by falling stage weights as happened to Sir Laurence Olivier at the Old Vic in 1937. Another huge contributor to this mythic curse was the Astor Place Riot of 1849, where the rivalry of two famous Shakespearean actors, Edwin Forrest and William McCready, led to one of the most notorious theater riots in history. There is an excellent Drunk History episode on this. Edwin Forrest was a rugged actor and a hero of the American working class, where William McCready was a more refined actor and a hero of the literary elite and the wealthy. So on May 10th, 1849, Forrest's working class supporters, descended by the thousands on the more refined McCready's planned performance of Macbeth at the lofty Astor Place Opera House, It was hardly the first theater riot in America, but it soon became the most serious. As the crowds got out of hand, state militia troops were summoned to end the riot, fired their weapons, and it ended with fatal results. Inside the theater, meanwhile, McCready struggled through the performance and then fled, never to appear in America again. 22 people died as a result of this riot, this theater riot. So is this play actually cursed? Who knows? But regardless of this, many scholars feel that the true difficulty with Macbeth is is that it was a play of its time and therefore harder for modern audiences to relate to it. Uh, For instance, this play was written just after King James had taken the throne. And it is said that Shakespeare wrote this play for him. King James was from Scotland, took the English throne. King James I was a monarch who was completely obsessed with witchcraft and in fact wrote his own text on it called Demonology. I highly suggest that you read it as it's absolutely hilarious and incredibly insightful into the thinking of the time. It's also largely written as two people randomly meeting on a street having a conversation. So it's kind of like, hey there, gentle sir, can you by any chance tell me why more women are witches than men? Why, of course, sir. Women, being permanently wicked because of the fall of Eve in the Garden of Eden, are much weaker by nature and therefore much likely to fall victim to such shenanigans etc, etc, etc. At any rate, Shakespeare wrote this play with his king's obsession in mind, and in fact, used demonology as one of his main sources for the witchcraft in the play. Clearly, he was trying to flatter the king. So why then would any English playwright in their right mind write a play where a Scottish king is murdered right at the beginning of the play? Generally, at this time, if you wrote about a monarch, you were in some way reflecting on the monarch that was actually throned. During Elizabeth I's reign, when Shakespeare wrote Richard II, a play that advocated the overthrowing of a monarch, the Queen noted, I am Richard II, know you not that? So why would Shakespeare risk his career with such a dangerous portrayal? The answer is he really didn't. This portrayed murder was actually, believe it or not, considered by many to be a compliment to King James I due to the gunpowder plot of 1605. Now the gunpowder plot was a failed attempt to blow up England's King James I and the parliament on November 5th, 1605. Some of you may know the rhyme that goes along with it. Remember, remember the 5th of November, the gunpowder treason and plot. I know of no reason the gunpowder treason should ever be forgot. The plot was organized by Robert Catesby, a Catholic convert, in an effort to end the persecution of Roman Catholics by the English government. Catesby and others hoped to replace the country's Protestant government with Catholic leadership. Catesby was an English Catholic whose father had been persecuted by Queen Elizabeth I for refusing to conform to the Church of England. So Catesby and a handful of other plotters rented a cellar that extended under the Parliament building, and Guy Fawkes planted gunpowder there. However, As the November 5th opening meeting of Parliament approached, Lord Monteagle, one of the doomed parliamentarians, was warned in a letter from his brother-in-law, one of the conspirators, to not attend Parliament on November 5th. Monteagle is said to have brought this letter to King James and it contained a bit of a riddle. They read the line, yet I say that they shall receive a terrible blow, this Parliament, and yet they shall not see who hurts them. This was a bit confusing as the use of the word blow up to that point had been mainly used in the sense of striking a blow meaning you would be able to see your attacker. Now it's said that James I was the one who lit on the idea of an explosion something being blown up and sent people to search. Hours before the attack was to have taken place Fox and the explosives were found and by torturing Fox, King James's government learned the identities of his co-conspirators. During the next few weeks English authorities killed or captured all of the plotters and put the survivors on trial. King James discovers the plot and saves the day. So when we look at Duncan's murder in the play, what do we see? A man whose last scene opens with him saying, this castle hath a pleasant seat. The air nimbly and sweetly recommends itself unto our gentle senses. Can you hear the horror movie music starting? His last line is his going off to meet Macbeth, ready to give him more honors, blissfully unaware of the horrors that await him. Shakespeare went out of his way to directly contrast the blissfully unaware Duncan with the intelligent and aware King James I, who had discovered the gunpowder plot and saved his own life, that of Parliament, and by extension, his country. It's this contrast that is the compliment. There's simply no way that King James could see himself in Duncan. That fool went blissfully to his death. Another frustrating bit of Macbeth for many actors, especially those cast in the role of the porter, is that you're clearly the comic relief of the show, but how do you make that speech funny? People have resorted to all sorts of tricks to try to make sense of the porter's knock-knock, who's their speech, even some going as far as throwing the entire speech out and just improvising. The Porter's speech is not funny to us because Shakespeare here is playing on a very specific idea called equivocation. It is a major theme in Macbeth, and his audiences would have known exactly what he was talking about. Equivocation is lying, but more specifically, using deceptive language to make people think you're telling the truth. The main proponents of this practice during this time were the Jesuits, who were the major players in and largely blamed for the gunpowder plot. The Jesuits were already illegal in England because they were a form of Catholicism, and they were especially hated by the government for encouraging people to remain true to Catholicism, despite the country's attempt to turn them Protestant. For the Jesuits, suffering was an integral part of Catholicism, and not compromising was a Catholic duty. To escape persecution and spread Catholicism, you can't spread if you're dead, the Jesuits used equivocation, There was a major treatise written on this called the Treatise on Equivocation, written by one Father Garnet, Jesuit priest who shouldered much of the blame for the gunpowder plot. Here's an example of this practice in its own words. Besides these kinds of propositions, which we have hitherto defended not to be lies in earlier chapters, although by them always some truth is concealed, there be some other ways whereby without a lie a truth may be covered, which I will briefly set down. First. We use some equivocal word, with, which hath many significations, and we understand it in one sense, which is true, although the hearer conceives the other, which is false. For example, if one should be asked whether such a stranger lodgeth in my house, and I should answer, he lieth not at my house, meaning he doth not tell a lie there, although he lodge there. Another, the whole sentence which we pronounce, or some word thereof, or the manner of pointing or dividing the sentence may be ambiguous and we speak it in one sentence true for our own advantage. So it was recorded of Saint Francis that being asked of one who was sought for death whether he came not that way he answered putting his hand into his sleeve or some say into his ear he came not this way meaning he came not through his ear. He's telling the truth but in a way that conceals a lie. That's not what the person asking him was asking him. He was asking him if someone came this way, but instead of revealing that truth, he equivocated. So when the porter, imagining that he is a doorkeeper to hell, lets in an equivocator, this is what he's talking about. Many scholars believe that the equivocator is Father Garnet himself, who was drawn and quartered for his part in the plot, and very well may have been believed to be knocking on Hellgate, being unable to equivocate his way into heaven. But how many modern theater theatergoers have read Garnet's treatise on equivocation? this joke is lost on them. It was a joke that resonated at a particular time in history with a particular audience who was part of that history. The humor of imagining Father Garnet trying to get into heaven with deceptive language doesn't resonate with a modern audience. Uh, Sort of like a very young child watching Disney's Aladdin now. No child is going to understand the genie turning into Arsenio Hall or William F. Buckley Jr. or Rodney Dangerfield. It's like that but with 400 more years added on. Equivocation is also used in other places in Macbeth, the witches and their prophecies, for example. They constantly use deceptive language with Macbeth and he falls right into it, even though he's being shown the truth. Later in Macbeth, after hearing that Burnham Wood has been seen moving toward Dunsinane, Macbeth states, "'I pull in resolution and begin to doubt the equivocation of the fiend that lies like truth.' He now doubts the third truth that he heard from the witches. They said for him not to worry until Burnham Wood moved to dunsinane which sounds like a slam dunk for safety, but of course that wasn't the full message. It was accompanied by the apparition of a boy in a crown holding a tree. Malcolm, the prince, tells his army to pick up branches to hide their numbers. Thus, it looks like the Wood is moving to dunsinane So while the words give Macbeth the impression of safety, that image should have given him pause in the second prophecy. Be bloody, bold, and resolute. Laugh to scorn the power of man, for none of woman born shall harm Macbeth." The apparition that is shown is a bloody child. Macbeth hears the prophecy and concentrates on the word woman. Since everyone is born of a woman, he thinks he has no need to fear. However, he should have focused on the word born. That coupled with the vision of the bloody child, a child perhaps covered with blood from a cesarean section, would have told him what he actually needed to fear. The first prophecy is straightforward, to the point. Fear Macduff, that's it. And because of that simplicity, it also becomes an equivocation. The simple, plain language makes Macbeth believe that the other prophecies will be just as straightforward. So I hope this talk has given you some information to help you better understand Macbeth and some of the historical happenings that led to its being penned. I also hope it will help you to enjoy this fantastic play regardless of curse, regardless of history, regardless of the disconnect, with honesty, clarity, appreciation of the talent, and joy with no equivocation necessary. Thank you for coming to my Bard Talk.
0: And now, performing the infamous porter monologue from Act 2, Scene 3 of Macbeth, our 2019 porter, Kenan Flag, along with one more taste of our devilishly delightful witches, performing Act 4, Scene 1, The Cauldron Scene.
5: Oh, here's a knocking indeed. If a man were a porter of Hellgate, he should have old turning the key. Knock knock knock. Who's there in the name of Beelzebub? Here's a farmer that hanged himself on the expectation of plenty. Come in time. Knock knock knock. Who's there in the other devil's name? Faith, here's an equivocator who committed treason enough for God's sake yet could not equivocate to heaven. Oh, come in, equivocator. Knock knock knock. Who's there? Faith, here's an English tailor come hither for stealing out of a French hose. (laughs) Come in, tailor. Here you may roast your goose. Knock, knock, knock. Never at quiet. What are you? Aye, but this place is too cold for hell. I'll devil porter it no further. I thought to have led in some of all professions that go the primrose way to the everlasting bonfire. Anon, Anon, I pray you, remember the porter.
2: Thrice the brinded cat hath mewed, thrice, and once the hedge-pig whined.
3: Up your Christ, tis time, tis time,
1: Round about the cauldron, go. In the poisoned entrails throw. Toad, that under cold stone days and nights has 31 sweltered venom sleeping got. Boil thou first in a charmed
2: pot. Double, 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 double toil, toil and trouble. trouble. Fire, Fire burn, burn and cauldron, cauldron bubble. bubble. Fillet of a fenny snake in the cauldron boil and bake. Eye of newt and toe of frog, wool of bat and tongue of dog. Adder's fork and blindworm's sting, lizard's leg and owlet's wing. For a charm of powerful trouble like a hellbroth boil and bubble. Double, double
1: Double, toil toil and and trouble, fire burn burn, and cauldron cauldron
3: bubble. bubble. Scale of dragon, tooth of wolf, witch's mummy, maw and gulf of the raven salt sea shark, root of hemlock digged in the dark, liver of blaspheming Jew, gall of goat and slips of yew, silvered in the moon's eclipse, nose of Turk and Tartar's lips, finger of birth strangled babe, ditch delivered by a drab, make the gruel thick and slab. The add thereto a tiger's chaldron for the ingredients of our cauldron.
2: Double, 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 double toil, toil and, and trouble, trouble. Fire, fire burn and cauldron, cauldron bubble. bubble. Cool it with a baboon's blood, then the charm is firm and good. By the pricking of my thumb, something wicked this way comes. Open locks whoever knocks.
0: And now I'd like to hand it back to our resident dramaturg, Doll Picado, for this episode's Bard Babble.
4: As Hamlet says in Act 2, Scene 2, words, words, words. This episode's Bard Babble is alligator. I know, you're saying, what? Shakespeare did not create the alligator. Of course not. The alligator existed long before Shakespeare's time, but the first appearance of the name by which we know it did not appear until Shakespeare's Romeo and Juliet, when Romeo describes the apothecary's lair. And in his needy shop, a tortoise hung, an alligator stuffed, and other skins of ill-shaped fishes. Until that time, the creature was generally known by its Spanish name, El Ligarto, which means the lizard. Shakespeare created over 400 words. This has been one of them.
0: Thank you, Doll, for that bard babble and for the fantastic bard talk today. Tune into our next episode of ShakesPod, Pod, also available today, featuring an interview with Bay Area theater veteran Aldo Billingsley, discussing his work with the Black Theater Fund, which supports the development and production of black theater across the United States, hosted by SVS Managing Director, Annalisa Takachev. And next week, you won't want to miss our very spooktacular special Halloween episode featuring a ghoulishly good interview with Macbeth's witches, hosted by Miss Tamara and Titus, available for streaming on October 31st. From SVS to all of our wonderful listeners, thank you for joining us for our first episode of ShakesPod.